the Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, I have the pleasure of Brian Douglas joining us. Welcome, Brian. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, for our audience that aren't familiar with Brian's background, Brian is a longtime aeronautics engineer. I think that might be the correct descriptor. But otherwise, you may better know him from his extremely popular YouTube channel, which is a sole production of Brian. For audience that might not be familiar with your YouTube channel or what the subject matter is, do you mind sharing a little bit, Brian? Yeah, no problem. First off, it's wildly popular in a very small circle of people. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we have to caveat that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I have a YouTube channel that I've been sort of maintaining for about seven years now that introduces people to the, the concept of control system engineering. Uh, so it's an educational channel. It's geared more towards control, but it also talks a little bit about robotics, spacecraft engineering, and things like that. We'll, we'll get into it in a moment about what exactly control slash systems engineering is. I mean, besides people can go look at your YouTube channel. Uh, but maybe before that, I'm curious to hear what the genesis of your YouTube channel was. Like, how did you get started on making these videos and discovering that they're uh, popular with a somewhat niche audience, but I don't know, your videos have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. I got started uh, mostly because when I graduated college, I thought I had a pretty good handle on how to approach engineering from my education. And when I started working, it was not necessarily completely different from what I was expecting, uh, but problems were approached in a different way um, you know, I wasn't given a nice setup for the problem to just go off and solve and do my math that I that I understood really well. And I benefited a lot from some really good mentors um, at my job, people that sat next to me, people that um, pulled me aside and, and, and really helped me a lot. And one in particular would always explain concepts to me in a way that just made so much sense. And I always thought, well, why, why? aren't there explanations like this out there? And I would search online and sometimes there would be in blog posts or, or um, you know, obscure parts of the internet, but there wasn't a whole lot of videos on YouTube that explained the, the why behind engineering. There was a lot that explained, you know, the, the sort of academic approach where you would set up a problem and solve that problem. And I thought, well, I should take a few of the things that, I've learned over the years and create some videos that describe a little bit more of the why behind engineering. And I didn't intend to keep doing this. I thought I would just make a few of them just as something that I can point to so I could remember it in the future. Uh, and then, you know, I got a few comments and uh, that was fun to read. And people were wondering if I was gonna make a second, a third and a fourth video. And I've just sort of kept going uh, from there. To give folks a hint of what control engineering refers to, Brian, you spent many years at Boeing, uh, a fair number of years in an asteroid mining startup, both dealing with what it sounds like is aeronautics engineering and systems that are exposed to the elements like deep space or intense uh, forces of heat and uh, wind. For audience that are, that are curious about what was your professional background where you met met these mentors? Um, what were the types of projects that you were working on that your mentors were exposed to you by? Yeah, so almost all of my experiences in spacecraft guidance, navigation, and control. Um, I spent 11 years at Boeing working really large spacecraft, um, uh, proprietary spacecraft, and then uh, spent a number of years developing the, the uh, control system for CubeSats. Um, a CubeSat is is a standard size uh, satellite that's about the size of a loaf of bread, and um, you know they're relatively cheap to to build and and to launch, uh, but they still have all of the same sort of, uh, of functionality of larger spacecraft for the most part. Uh, yeah, so so I spent um, you know a fair number of years doing that, and then spent one year at Boeing designing primary flight controls for the seven four seven and seven three seven, 
And uh, after that, I, I thought I want to get back into space. So I left Boeing, joined this startup, um, Planetary Resources, uh, that was had this sort of goal to ultimately mine asteroids. Um, our near term, that was our long term goal. Our near term goal was just to build up the avionics and the software infrastructure that was that we were going to use for these deep space spacecraft. And we were testing them on low Earth orbiting um, CubeSats um, and other small satellites. So there, my role again was uh, guidance, nav, and control, which is essentially figuring out where the spacecraft is in orbit, where you want it to go, and uh, uh, which direction orientation it's it's facing at any given time. Uh, and then beyond beyond that, uh, I was also the eventually the director of systems engineering at Planetary Resources, which which control engineering was a subset of and it was kind of a little bit uh higher higher up um where we were you know where i was i was uh responsible for you know sort of normal systems engineering things it's not as exciting as as guidance nav and control it's things like you know requirements and interfaces and technical budgets and things like that so a lot of our audience are not themselves control engineers uh, definitely not in aeronautics, I think, in most instances, or aerospace. So for people who might be desk jockeys or keyboard jockeys, software engineers, can you give a sense of what the day-to-day -day life looks like as an engineer at both Boeing and at a startup? Well, the day-to-day the, the -day life isn't all that different for a similar size project. When I was working a large space program, it was very similar to a large aircraft program at Boeing and the small CubeSat program uh, was very similar to kind of the startup life in the sense that um, I'm, you know, I'm sure you and your audience are sort of aware of this, of the, the idea of wearing multiple hats. Um, you don't get the luxury of being the, the, the control systems engineer 100% of the time on small projects. And so if you're into that, um, and I found out that I was, uh, it's very exciting and kind of rewarding to be able to, you know, help stand up a lab or help decide onboarding procedures for new engineers and things like that. Um, whereas my job on, you know, the 737 was I was given a single control law and we didn't even, you know, I, I wasn't even responsible for writing the software. For that it was all algorithm development so every day i would come in and i would work on sort of crafting this algorithm and uh once i thought that it was at the state that i wanted it to to be at i would hand it over to a software team who would code it up and you know several weeks later or whatever i'd receive it back and i would test it for weeks on end and make notes and changes and then send it back to the software team and so you you get a little bit more deep dive into one particular thing which again was also exciting. Um, it it wasn't a good fit for me ultimately, but you know it's exciting to be able to to dive into one problem and just understand it fully, versus always feeling like you have to move on to the next thing on a startup and you always have to do something ninety percent and then move on because you just don't have the time or the or the bandwidth to do everything. To take a step back for a moment, you mentioned control laws. For folks who haven't yet watched maybe one or two of your YouTube videos, uh, <laughs> what what is a control law? And for example, maybe how many control laws might be being worked on on a Boeing project like the sort you worked on versus the the startup projects you might have worked on? Yeah, so uh, it definitely cut me off here because I'm liable oh. to just go on this topic forever <laughs> here. Um, sure. let, let me start with your second question. Um, tons, tons of control laws. Um, and, and I'll use an example of an automobile here at the end of just how many control laws are, are operating simultaneously. Um, and, and you think of the big ones like maybe cruise control. But uh, before I get to that, I guess I want to step back and kind of describe a little bit more of what control systems engineering is, and then that'll make everything make a lot more sense. Um, so it's kind of built into the name. 
you know, control systems engineering, we're trying to control a system. And um, there's a lot of ways to think about a system. Maybe, maybe for this podcast, a good way is to think of it as like a function and there's inputs into the function. Inside the function, there's internal logic and mathematics and there's, you know, uh, manipulation of those inputs. And then there's an output or multiple outputs from that function. And so the function itself would be like the system. Um, and if we take a less or a more abstract view of it, it can be anything that can be influenced by inputs. And then internally there's physics that happens and then the state changes and an output is observed. So with a car, if you're driving your car, the inputs are things like uh, your steering wheel and your brake and your gas pedal. And the state that you're trying to affect is position of the car or velocity or the direction that you're facing. And, you know, uh, that makes a lot of sense because it's like, you know, mechanical thing and I'm very mechanical centric, but we can also think of a system at a huge macro level, uh, like the environment, you know, we could, uh, input into the environment by planting trees or chopping down trees or adding greenhouse gases or removing them. Um, and then there's physics that happens and some state changes. And then the output would be, you know, climate change or animals migrating to and from specific environments. There's, so there's one, one that sort of, there's oh, one word, there's one word of vocabulary that I thought might be cool to mention as an aside about just the, the breadth of inputs that there might be to such a, a function or environment. And this keyword is arity, A-R-I-T-Y. I recommend people go check out the Wikipedia page because I had to, <laughs> but it describes the number of inputs to functions. So functions might be of different arity, meaning the number of arguments to that function. So in the case of a car without a steering wheel, that would be one less arity than a car with a steering wheel. So I, I'm just thinking about the types of systems you're describing or, or your metaphor or simile of a, a function or and I'm thinking of the, the keyword arity and like just how many inputs are there to the system. Yeah, I've never heard of that term. I will, <laughs> I'll go check out the Wikipedia article. Uh, but yeah, so, so now that we, yeah, so now that we have that understanding of inputs, system outputs, control engineering all comes down to just one single question. And that's what are the right inputs into the system to produce the desired output? How can we poke and prod the system, send the right commands, um, add forces and torques and energy in just the right place to produce the desired output? And so um, every every control engineer is is trying to do that in some way. And so again, I, I said some of the obvious examples are like cruise control with your car. Um, the the control system is trying to figure out how to add like a fuel air. Um, intake into the engine to uh, adjust the speed of of the car or your HVAC system in your house, um, air conditioning and heat, right? It's got a thermostat, it's measuring the temperature, there's some feedback there, and it's turning on the heater, turning on the air conditioner, and it's trying to figure out how to add the right amount of energy into your house in order to get the desire that you want. But that's sort of the the first view of control theory, and that was my view for a very long time, which is that we wanted to uh, develop these control systems for autonomy. We want to make everything autonomous. We want to get the person out of the loop so that things can run on their own. That's what we do with robotics and what we do with drones and autonomous cars. Uh, but there's a lot of other reasons why we would develop a control system, like just to increase performance. For example, like power steering assist on cars. That's not taking the human out of the loop. It's just trying to improve their ability to, to steer in certain situations and to make it easier for them. Or we might improve safety, like an anti-stall control law in an aircraft. Uh, it's not running all the time, but if the angle of attack gets too high, there's gonna be some sort of nose down torque that a control law is going to apply so it doesn't stall. And we develop control laws to improve stability um, for unstable systems like nuclear power plants nuclear power generation is inherently an unstable process so it has to be controlled uh in order to even you know get it to to produce anything of value and and lastly we we develop control systems to reject disturbances um so like a three-axis cam camera gimbal you know those little things that you hold in your hand you can hold your dslr your cell phone steady 
um, there's a there's a feedback control system running in there that its sole job is to reject the shaking from your hand or 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 disturbances from the wind in the environment. So there's a lot of reasons why we develop control systems. And if you take this sort of macro view of what that is, and you look at a car, there's dozens or hundreds of control systems running all the time. I, I mentioned cruise control if you turn it on, but there's uh, you know anti-knock controllers in the engine. There's uh, anti-lock brakes controlling. You know you know how you slow down. There's lane assist. There's uh, the air fuel ratio is is being actively controlled there might be active dampers um in the suspension and so on so um it's it's hard to say but every every device that you use probably has at least dozens of control systems that are running on them in the background so i've got two questions for you um about this topic one is i and we can cover them in whatever order you'd prefer but one of them is so you're working on maybe one control law at a time um, there's probably many other teams that are working on the other control laws in parallel. How do you say that when two control systems that are applied to the same shared system, like an airplane, uh, that they, when they co-occur, they behave differently than when they behaved in isolation? What's, what's kind of the integration testing that happens between maybe two teams working on, uh, on an airplane or uh, aerospace vehicle, and then the the second question, real quick, uh, <laughs> before I forget it, is um, oh, man, I'm gonna forget it. Just go ahead with this first question. <laughs> sure, yeah, that first question is great. It's um, it's it's hard. Uh, control laws. Um, we we have this concept of like an inner loop and an outer loop. It, which which means two feedback control systems where one is running inside the other one. Uh, for example, you might have a really fast motor controller that's controlling the speed of a motor, and then a much slower outer loop control law that is commanding, um, you know, the motor to go to a specific RPM to accomplish some other goal. And if if uh, not to get too terribly technical, but if like the bandwidths of the two of the two control laws overlap or they interfere with each other in some way, it's it is a big problem. Um, and usually, I mean, just like with anything, you know, you know, the way you mitigate that is through requirements and through testing and through communication and documentation, all that stuff. Um, but a, a big one that's relatively easy to understand uh, on uh, with aircraft or anytime you have a control law that has to interact with a human because humans have their own bandwidth, their own ability to observe the environment and react to it. So let's say you have a, uh, uh, you have a, an aircraft that you're trying to fly straight and level and a wind gust comes and pitches the nose of the aircraft up or something. Uh, the pilot wants to react to that and put the nose back down. But if there's a control law running in the background that also wants to do that, you can get into this situation that's called a pilot-induced oscillation, uh, where the pilot and the control laws are fighting each other, and and you can't actually, you, you know, um, or you can induce this oscill oscillation where where you can't uh, get to a steady state condition because both the, uh, the the human and the control law are trying to do the same thing at the same speed. And and uh, usually humans can adapt much faster than a control law can and recognize that and stop it. But even those transient oscillations are things that you want to try to avoid. And so you want to be very cognizant of how fast your control law is, is operating and the conditions under which it operates. And you have to understand sort of the I guess psychology of a of a human operator uh, and physiology of a human operator to to make sure that you're not over overlapping those two things. Totally, totally. I mean, I I can visualize this type of uh, accident occurring. I guess would be the most delicate way to describe this scenario you just mentioned, where there's oscillation that occurs because a human is reacting to something in the system, whereas a control system is fighting that human. Or, or reacting in a delayed fashion, so you get an oscillation. 
And I can imagine that the results are disastrous potentially. I'm curious how how are how does human testing come into the loop with control law development like you were working on? Um, like how is it number of hours with a human logged or like how how is the <laughs> how is testing done? Well, we have um, mathematical models of human pilots, so we can simulate what a human does with you know some probability distribution and 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 essentially you're trying to stay stay well outside of those regions um mm -hmm. so that it's not necessarily a problem um and then again you know we keep going back to to aircraft um mm -hmm. just because they have pilots and the spacecraft that i've you know designed don't but mm -hmm. um it uh you know it comes down to to flying in simulators with half a dozen or a dozen different pilots and and you get a feel for whether whether the control law is is working with the pilot or against the pilot but an interesting an interesting thing with um with pilot induced oscillations is it's not necessarily the control law it could just be the the mechanics of the system and the person itself like you can imagine if you are pushing on the control stick and you're really rigid, your arms are rigid, uh, your back is rigid, you're pushed up against the chair, but the chair is vibrating because you're hitting a lot of turbulence. <laughs> that vibration goes through your rigid body, goes to the, to the control stick, and that is vibrating also. And if it's exactly out of phase, uh, you know, with, with the vibrations of the aircraft, because there's some delay that goes through there, that can just amplify it. And so th in that case, the, the right thing to do is sort of to relax yourself and to not make yourself such a stiff spring. No, no joke. I have an exact uh, example of this occurring on a boat maybe two weeks ago where myself and a few other people rented this boat with a very low power motor. It was a pretty long boat, maybe like, I don't know, 15 feet. And we were going under a bridge that we all had to duck down to get under and so the initial driver the driver changed after this incident but the initial driver there's such a long delay from turning the rotor or turning the steering wheel to affecting a change in direction that there was this overcompensation that the driver was making in literally every 10 feet and <laughs> we ended up going under this bridge everybody ducking down and we crashed into the side <laughs> under the bridge but I'm, I'm imagining this delayed feedback loop being one fa one factor in maybe human human involvement human in the loop systems that uh, a control system would have been a better off singularly controlling the path of the boat. <laughs> but so, yeah, sort of. Except you brought up delay. Delay is in every system, mm. in every, every physical system, every digital system, um, and delay is exactly like your friend with the boat, it causes, you know, too much delay can cause an unstable system. Mm. So if you're, if you're talking about a sampled data system and you're running your control law on a digital computer and for whatever reason, you can only, uh, uh, run your digital computer with a sample time of like one second. Um, you know, it's potential that that delay could cause your system to go unstable because by the time that you're able to to command an actuator, it's far too late. And so when you, you know, you, you've turned the boat, but now you need to go back the other way and you sense that and you send a command back in the other way, but now it's far too late in the other direction and you just start oscillating. Um, and so that's why we look at things like how much delay margin do you have? How much phase margin do you have in your design so that those types of things don't occur? But mm -hmm. delay is, is a huge issue even for computers not just for humans fair enough yeah i'm just remembering my other question for you that i was going to give you the option to choose between the two questions was taking a human out of the loop um you described working on a control law and uh passing off maybe your uh, your output at work was handed off to a software engineering team and then the software engineering team would go implement what you'd instructed them or maybe specified and handed it back to you upon which you do some testing. Um, did I get, first of all, did I get that right at all? 
Yes. Yeah, you did. For the larger programs that I've been on, that's that's how we've approached uh, coding our so our control algorithms. So, so pre handoff to the software engineering team, what what type of work do you do? What kind of tools do you use to specify the system before handing it off? I guess. Um, uh, different companies and different groups use different tools and different methods. So the, the one I'm familiar with is that we would describe all of our specifications in the form of block diagrams. And the block diagrams would be created either with a tool like Simulink from MathWorks or with an in-house block diagram tool. And, you know, these tools are nice because you can, uh, simultaneously build up a block diagram and test it in the same tool right they're they're executable mm -hmm. and so we would we would build up all of our control algorithms um in this sort of graphical form intermixed with some scripts in, in kind of a scripting language like in matlab um, or in python or something and test it in a simulation environment and then you know essentially pdf those block diagrams and and send them over to a, a team to code them up. That's sort of the big a big program approach. One one of the hot topics, or has been a hot topic for a very long time, in software engineering is about dev prod parity, and the meaning of that. If you for our listeners who might not know, dev refers to development, prod refers to production. And parity refers to the fact that what you might do on your laptop in development in your day-to-day -day work might not reflect the realities of production. And so any deviations between development and production can be disastrous because you might not be accounting for uh, realities that might exist in production. And one of the things I'm curious about is in working on control systems, maybe using MATLAB and MathWorks Simulink is... Does MATLAB run on your target uh, systems? Um, is can you build the control the type of control systems like a um, like you, what you worked on, um, and their end state being um, a MATLAB program per se? Um, well, if you want it to be a MATLAB program in state, sure. If your target computer is running. OS X or Windows or, or something, you can absolutely do that, mid or, or Linux or something. Um, we would never do that. We would usually, on the smaller programs, we would just autocode um, into C, uh, you know, embedded C directly from MATLAB and Simulink. Awesome. And so we would choose the, the target, you know, yeah. processor. Part, part of my ignorance about MATLAB and Simulink, but does... MATLAB, Simulink, they, they give you some functionality to convert your MATLAB code into uh, embedded C code? Is yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They have a, okay. an entire auto code toolbox, I guess. Got it. Um, so, so that's what we would do. And, 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 uh, yeah, I don't know where to go from, from there, but, no, no. but we would have, you know, our target processor running in a lab and um we, you know we would make changes to our source code in this case is matlab files m files or simulink files which are just binary files mm -hmm. and then we would autocode and then you know uh port them over to the to the processor run them real time um on the target processor with you know hardware in the loop with actuators and sensors running. And then if we had any issues, um, we could either run it sort of in, de in debug mode and figure out what's going on. But we would always go back then to the original source, which is, you know, the Simulink or the M files, the, totally. the MATLAB scripts. Totally. Yeah, no, I, the reason I'm asking these probing questions about such specific things like how do you get the MATLAB code on the device types of questions are because I think in watching YouTube videos, there's a there's a disparity between watching the concepts described in a very clear way clear way thanks to Brian uh, and you know implementing them to run on maybe a Raspberry Pi or even on your laptop and I know one example that Brian references in one of his talks is uh, a thermal control example which 
he links to a great explanation of how you could literally buy the the computer hardware to implement this experiment yourself on your desk. Um, but I, I want to highlight just what it looks like in a job at Boeing, maybe, or in a satellite startup, exactly what the workflow looks like from uh, idea conception of a control system to how you might be implementing a, a piece of hardware to go out into the real world and and either A, just test, or B, be in production. <laughs> so on, on that topic, one of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, for sure is in relation to how you choose what content you produce, what, how, what guides you in, in choosing what to explain in your next YouTube explainer. Yeah, sure. Um, first off, just on that comment, though, is I actually I put a video out on how to be what it means to be a control systems engineer. And it, and it starts from concept formulation before you even know what you want to build. Like you want to take images of hillsides to track erosion over time. You don't know whether you want to build a helicopter that does that with a camera system or a satellite or a drone. So it, it sort of walks through from formulation of an idea all the way to operation in the field of, of sort of what your day job looks like as the program progresses. And so I can send that to you. And if you want, you can put that in the show notes for anybody who's interested. Definitely. Um, definitely. But as, as far as how I choose my topics, they've changed over the years. Um, when, when I first started, it was things that I sort of had an aha moment about and thought, Oh, I need to go out there and, and uh, and share this with people and maybe other people will find it just as useful as I had. Um, and then from from there, I started uh, really trying to fill out a first year controls course. And so I was looking at, OK, well, what haven't I covered and 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 starting to fill in the gaps? Um, and, and then that took a, a few years. And after I was done with that, um, you know, this is all on the side. Uh, uh, and so it, it it came in in bursts and fits and stops and and it was you know kind of a mess but um it would it would usually just be whenever i thought of a unique way or what i thought was a unique way of explaining something uh, i would search for it and if somebody else explained that topic really well i would skip over it and say well i don't need to to put another explanation out there i would rather just point people to to that explanation like for example um, three blue, one brown does a fantastic series on um, eigenvalues and eigenvectors. And I've always wanted to do a video on that. But after I watched his video, I thought, I'm just going to send my audience over there because it's it's better than what I could have done. So, so um, but if there's a hole, then I try to, to fill it. Um, it. You'll notice that I haven't actually put a video out on my channel in almost a year now. And that's because about a year and a half ago, I started making very similar videos to what I put on my channel, but I make them for the MATLAB channel. And so now the way I just decide the topics is with, you know, some folks over at MathWorks and, and we decide uh, what, what would be a good and interesting topic or series that people search for. And there's some general confusion around, like there's a series on PID control or there's a series on reinforcement learning, which is, you know, a big buzzword these days and people want to know about it. And so I, I choose my topics now um, a little bit more in a committee to, to figure out what people are interested in. For sure. Having, having an editor is, is all, all, almost always awesome <laughs> and like, so value add. Uh, I know, I know you kind of poo pooed this idea when I suggested it before the show, but one of the parallels I thought would be really interesting for our audience to consider about control systems engineering and its applications is in relation to the future of cars and the future of flight, too. Um, it may be the future of satellites, which is autonomous vehicles. And I'd imagine that some of the interest and demand and viewers of your YouTube channel are people who will find themselves in the field of autonomous self-driving cars in the not too distant future, if not, you know, right now. So can you speak at all to the parallels that um, people might be um, seeing between 
traditional control systems engineering applications and really contemporary ones like autonomous cars. I mean, reinforcement learning for one, like you just mentioned, I think is a popular topic at, you know, Waymo and Uber and whatnot. Yeah. First, first off, uh, I don't know if I poo-pooed it. That's, that's your <laughs> phrase, I suppose. This is my <laughs> phrase, definitely. Mostly I wanted to let let folks know that I don't have any practical experience with autonomous cars. Um, and so I don't want to give the impression that um, I'm an expert in this field. Uh, but I can definitely talk about it as an outsider who understands, you know, the challenges of making something autonomous. Uh, so, you know, I, I talked about how we have um, a system and, and all we're trying to do is figure out what the right inputs are. And if you fully understand your system and you fully under, understand the environment that it needs to operate in, it's pretty trivial to figure out what the right inputs are. I mean, some real basic um, control laws and an understanding of control laws and you can write anything. I mean, you know, uh, we, we've had cruise control for decades uh, and, and that runs on really rudimentary computers. You know, there, there's, there's not a whole lot to it. Mm -hmm. So the issue with, that I see with self-driving cars um, and to a lesser extent, uh, self, you know, autonomous aircraft and to an even lesser extent, extent autonomous spacecraft is how well you can understand your environment. And space, you know, people like to say space is hard. Uh, every time there's a rocket that explodes or a lander that crashes into the moon, you know, that's what people say. Space is hard. And it's absolutely hard. Um, but I don't think it's as hard as the self-driving car problem. Because when we talk about space, the environment is challenging, but it's pretty well understood comparatively in terms of the uncertainties that you're going to see. And so how you uh, set up your control system to handle those uncertainty becomes a little bit more straightforward. And there's very little chance that a pedestrian is going to walk out in front of a spacecraft mm. um, or you're going to get hit by another car. Um, although there is a Tesla Roadster out there. So there is a slight chance. <laughs> or, <laughs> but, it's, or it's going to be raining in, in our space. Not likely. Or it's going to be raining. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, things like, there's an 11 year solar cycle that that is again predictable and kind of understandable but these are the types of things that you have to deal with but they're they're a little bit more um boundable than the self-driving car problem and so what i think is the challenge there is not necessarily how to develop the controller itself the control law but it's all the peripheral um functions that need to operate in order for the controller to be successful and one of the things or, or two of the things would be uh, observations. How do you know what your environment is and how do you track all of the individual things that are moving relative to you? And how do you interpret all of this data that's coming into your system so that you understand the state of the environment? And then there's a planning problem is once you understand the environment, what do you want the control system to do? What do you want the system to do? Like, I, I you know, you sort of take it um, for granted when you say, oh, I want to drive at 50 miles an hour straight down this lane, right? That's your, that's the extent of planning for cruise control. But if a car, you know, cuts you off or a person walks in front of you, that's no longer the best plan. And so you need a, a separate set of logic and, and algorithms that run that say, let me let me pull in all of this data, interpret it, and now generate a new plan that I want the system to do. That output from that planning algorithm is the new command for your control system. And so you could essentially run, you know, a cruise control control law straight down the highway, and it can stop at stop signs and stop lights and take off and stop at crosswalks for pedestrians as long as there's a higher level planning algorithm that tells it what to do. Mm -hmm. So, so those are the, those are two of the big things that I think are really, really tough for self-driving cars. And again, aircraft are easier air, you know, the skies are a little bit more predictable, but there's still 
weather that you have to avoid and it still has to take off and land and it has to avoid, you know, potentially flocks of birds and, or, or whatever. Um, these are all the, the, the level of uncertainty just grows as you get closer to the surface of the earth. And that just makes the problem so much harder. Totally. Totally. I, I can imagine that within Waymo, within Uber autonomous tech group, that they each probably have a team that's dedicated to left turns on a rainy day at 4 p.m. in the summer, <laughs> you know? And there, <laughs> there, there's just like such a specific set of conditions that a control system might be uh, stable for <laughs> that, that, like you described, there's got to be a higher order uh, control system that... Um, has has the end goal in sight, which is you know reach my destination safely um, within an adequate time horizon. Uh, right. Yeah, and that's where you know machine learning comes in. In my mind, um, uh, is is in the you know supervised learning with images from a camera system into you know interpreting objects, identifying features in, in an image. That's a pedestrian, that's a car, that's a crosswalk, that's a stop sign, all of that stuff, right? That's clearly beneficial. And they're, they've been doing that for years and years and years. And then potentially, um, again, I'm speaking outside of my expertise here, but I would imagine on the planning side, um, as well as interpreting that and trying to figure out whether it's safe to take a left turn or to go straight or whatever, you could collect you know, tons and tons of data from from the millions of cars we have driving around, and you can feed that in through some sort of um, data driven algorithm to come up with with a plan. As far as using something like reinforcement learning to replace the controller itself, I don't have experience with doing it for production. Um, uh, uh, programs but i would i would have a hard time currently with the current state of of reinforcement learning doing that for a production program trying to learn a control law and being confident in the results across the entire operating state space of your system and that's kind of a challenge that we've gotten really good at for um, a traditional approach to control law um, development. We've gotten really good at at figuring out how to verify that it's going to work. And that's something we need to get good at if we want to, you know, sort of jump headfirst into a machine learning approach. Totally, totally. I have, I have a, a more synthetic example than maybe autonomous cars driving on roads, which is that there's a popular computer game called StarCraft, and there was a very popular competition that arose when people figured out how to create automated bots for StarCraft. Um, and StarCraft's a real-time strategy computer game where you harvest resources, You, the ultimate goal is to destroy the opponent and all of their units or whatever. Um, but there's there was this open competition to build AI software to compete in a round-robin tournament. And so every every StarCraft bot would play against every other StarCraft bot, and they had a round robin where, you know, they determined wh who is the victorious best AI StarCraft bot, and uh, the result was a lot of submissions from academics. Um, obviously, this is an extremely lucrative uh, <laughs> competition, um, but these academics, you know, then went on to write papers about the approach they took. Um, and you can go read the the papers of the winning teams each year of this competition. And I'll include a link in the show notes if people are curious. But as Brian was describing this higher order uh, agent versus a localized agent, the winning bots often would have a multi-agent system where one agent would be focusing on one one dimension of the, the game, like resource collection where another bot would be focused on um, micro combat. Um, and basically there were all of these separate agents that needed to be coordinated by a higher agent. And so exactly like Brian's describing, the most victorious model was just as Ryan described, which is 
uh, a multi-agent system with uh, super mother agent <laughs> that keeps all other agents in tune with what the what the real goal is. Um, and I can imagine that's similar to how maybe an autonomous vehicle team is organized and um, how control laws might be delegated amongst teams. Um, but I'm just spitballing here. I, I personally don't know a single employee at Waymo or Uber. <laughs> but no, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, MATLAB and Simulink, for example, uh, and the types of tutorials that people might self-walk themselves through while watching Brian's videos are similar to in nature to what the day-to-day on autonomous vehicles or autonomous satellite teams might be doing. I mean, you said yourself, that's along the lines of what you were doing at the satellite startup. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, there's, there's, there's no getting away from the classical approach to systems engineering and control systems engineering, even if parts of a system are being you know, learned through massive amounts of data. So uh, I, I guarantee that there's some traditional control laws like a PID controller uh, somewhere embedded in what Waymo is doing. Um, but beyond that, uh, it would all be speculation on my part. Totally, totally. I won't, I won't push you any further to try and assume, make assumptions about what they're doing. <laughs> um, one, one final topic I thought would be cool to cover is in relation to the types of employers that are out there for engineering jobs and engineering careers. And you worked at two extremely different employers in your career so far, one being Boeing for 11 years, another being a satellite startup. And one of the topics I think think would be interesting for our audience is just how different those jobs were for you. Like how, how radical a work change was it to go from uh, a huge employer like a Boeing to a very small employer like a startup? Um, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, um, they're both in the same similar industry for the most part. Um, they're not radically different, but their size is radically different. And I enjoyed both of them um, for completely different reasons. Um, at a large company like at Boeing, there's so much uh, technical expertise in-house that you have access to, you know, the, the world's best in almost every subject that you can think of. And by being under the same roof, um, the, you know, the same Boeing company, you can reach out to those people. And, um, and the thing I found interesting there is that you, even if you, you know, the first job that you take at a company like that, you might not enjoy. Uh, but you get to see you're you're sort of behind the curtain then at that point. You get to see what other programs are going on and what other jobs there are within that program. And I found that it was fairly easy to sort of move around once I got inside and I got to land um, at a job <clears throat> at several jobs that I really enjoyed at at that large company. Um, and in jumping around, I got exposed to a lot of of different types of work. You know, like I was a, a, a spacecraft operator for a while, sending commands up to a spacecraft um, and, and being sort of detailed in that before moving on to something else. So I kind of had this uh, broad exposure, but every time I got exposed to something, it was extremely detailed because the programs are so big versus something like, you know, planetary resources at the end. I mean, I joined when there was 20 or, or so, and by the end we had 70, 75 people. So it's still a really small company is that, um, you know, you're, you're a generalist. You have to be very broad in, in your knowledge sort of right off the bat. And like I said, you have to, you know, you might find yourself sweeping one day for whatever reason, because you have somebody coming in to visit and you need to clean up the office. Um, and I was, uh, quite nervous actually leaving Boeing and going into a, 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 a company like that because everybody had had experience at planetary resources working in that kind of environment. And I didn't realize how quickly you grow, um, as, as an engineer, when you're just sort of forced to do everything, you don't have that deep knowledge well to pull from. And so now you're sort of a little bit more on your own. You have to, um, you know, try things that you may not know is correct or not. And so when I, when I showed up, 
my coworkers had been doing that for a while. And it's very intimidating to walk into a situation like that where everybody appears to be so much smarter and more put together than you. And it's like, well, I've just been doing this one tiny little thing for seven years and everybody here has ex you know exposure to everything. Um, but the thing I loved about the small program is that you, you get up to speed really quickly. I mean, it, you know, within a few months, um, I, I felt comfortable anyway. And I, I assume, you know, that's a typical experience at a small company and, uh, and, uh, you, you, for me, I typically worked longer hours at planetary resources than I did at Boeing, but they were fun hours mm -hmm. and, you know, it's the kind of typical startup, you know, there's a ping pong table and a pool table and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, throughout the day, you're sort of breaking up the the grind of your your job with some fun things, in, you know, in between. And as long as you find a small company with a, a good group of employees, uh, it, you know, it becomes more of a family to you than, you know, at a large company. And so um, I enjoyed that also uh, a whole bunch. So, um, I don't, I don't uh, regret either of those. I've got a, a good network of people that, that I still keep in touch with, with Boeing, which is helpful and from planetary resources, which is helpful. So for me, sort of jumping around and, and trying two different size companies has, has worked out really well. So as, as a parting question, I have a silly question. What, why do you think that Boeing does not have a ping pong table? Why doesn't Boeing have a ping pong table? Um, I don't know. I'm sure they do somewhere. Not the program <laughs> I was on. Sure. Uh, the programs I was on, they had so many people typically that there was no room for ping pong tables. We mm. needed it for desks. Mm. Uh, so uh, I'm sure they have a ping pong table somewhere. You have to. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, MathWorks has, has a couple ping pong tables and they're a fairly large company. They're five or 6,000 people. So it's, it's everywhere. I think it's... Um, you know, people are, are recognizing the the need to sort of enjoy your your job. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> and, an, uh, an, an incredible revelation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, if it's fun to go to work, um, and you know, you're you're doing good work, right? You can't spend the whole time playing, but um, you know, it's it. I, I I think it yields better results if everybody enjoys being around each other and, and playing with each other and, and working with each other. Totally. Totally. So Brian, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.